So many of you have probably heard of the poem written by John Milton in 1667 called Paradise Lost. At 10,000 lines and without a rhyming pattern, it takes a serious commitment to read through it. But Paradise Lost is considered a masterpiece of the English language. In his well-known epic poem, Milton describes the encounter from Genesis 3 where Satan entices Adam and Eve to sin in the garden. Milton tightly encapsulates the disastrous reality of, of Adam's failure and the devastating consequences of the fall. Paradise, perfectly crafted, now seemingly irretrievably lost. What fewer of you may realize is that Milton, a few years later, actually wrote a lesser-known poem as a follow-up to Paradise Lost. The second work essentially serves as a sequel to the first. Its title, Paradise Regained. What do you suppose Milton used as the basis for a theme? What text did he use as the basis for a theme as massive as paradise regained? Maybe Isaiah 60 or Romans 8 or Revelation 21 and 22. Milton took as his text our passage for today. The scene describing the temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. My beloved brothers and sisters, hear then the word of Almighty God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, Command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, 
you shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And so, Lord, I pray uh, that you, even at this moment, would protect us as a body. Keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil so that we might hear your word accurately. So that our souls might be encouraged. So that we might turn from temptation and toward you, the living God. Lead us by your spirit now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the reason that Milton chose our passage as his main text is because one could easily argue that as the true and better Adam, the mission of Jesus to redeem sinners and restore the creation order began with his defeat of the devil in the Judean wilderness. In fact, as we discussed at some length last week, the case is so strong, I think that would serve us well to have as our main point this morning. The mission of Jesus to redeem sinners and restore creation began with his defeat of the devil in the Judean wilderness. Just think about what Satan is trying to do here. He's trying to end the ministry of Jesus before it even begins. Maybe the clearest way to get at the essence of what's happening here may be to walk through our passage by asking three questions, one for each of the temptations that are highlighted here. First, what do I ultimately need? That addresses the first temptation in verse 3. Second, what do I ultimately desire? Second temptation, verse 7. 
Third, who do I ultimately trust? Verse 9, third temptation. So we'll just begin with our first question. There are a lot of fun, interactive games that people like to play where they simply ask each other questions. One of the more popular versions of these games includes asking a question that begins with these words, would you rather? Now, what makes this game entertaining is that people are forced to choose between one of only two possible answers. For example, would you rather travel the world free for a year or have $50,000 to spend however you please? Would you rather be able to see 10 minutes into the future or 150 years into the future? Now, there's a straightforward response to each question since you have to choose between one of only two options. But the real interaction, the real insight, the real purpose of this game is subtle. The key is getting people to talk about their reasoning behind their answers. At this deeper level, people begin to interact in ways that reveal how they think about different aspects of life. Now, in terms of our passage, I want to press in at two levels of depth. First, what we might consider the straightforward level. And second, I want to explore a more subtle, in this case, a more sinister level. A more sinister level of motivation or temptation used by the devil in his interactions with Jesus. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil is essentially trying to get Jesus to play a cosmic game of would you rather. Jesus, I'm guessing you're hungry. Would you rather leverage your clear right as the Son of God and use your power to feed yourself, relieving your hunger, or would you rather continue to starve to death here in this god cursed wilderness. Huh? What do you want to do, Jesus? Now this phrase here in verse 3, translated, if you are the Son of God, 
And that makes it sound like Jesus is questioning the identity of Jesus. But in the original language, in the Greek, it's, it's much stronger than that. It's more of a direct challenge. Like, since you're the son of God, change this stone to bread. Unless you can't. Unless you're not. But this challenge makes perfect sense in context because the Judean wilderness wasn't some kind of wild jungle. It was a rocky, barren wasteland. When R.C. Sproul visited the Judean wilderness, he said, it was the most desolate-looking place I've ever seen in my entire life. And it was in this place where Jesus was tempted continuously for 40 days. Three of those temptations are highlighted here. So at the most straightforward level, the reason Jesus doesn't do what the devil asks him to do is because Jesus isn't really listening to Satan. In other words, the devil's words don't carry any authoritative weight with him at all. Verse 1, Jesus is filled with the Spirit, and he's being led by the Spirit. So, who's he listening to? (laughs) The Spirit. But right out of the gate, I think this is a powerful application for us. At the most straightforward level, if you want the devil to have less influence over your life, don't listen to him. Uh, But how do we do that? Let's just think about this together. If you first seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit, as Paul exhorts us to do in Ephesians 5.18, and as we see Jesus is here at the beginning of chapter 4, and if we seek to be led by the Holy Spirit by communing with God in his word, then you have the power. You have the power to respond as simply and clearly as Jesus did. If you sense the presence of evil... The right response is to just ignore any thought or feeling that is not from the word or that distracts you from following the Spirit's leading. Now, before you say, well, uh, yeah, but that's easier said than done. (laughs) Notice how subtly and straightforwardly Jesus responds to the temptation of the devil. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus could have said so many things to him. He could have challenged so many of his sinister assumptions. He could have just filleted him and put him down in his place. But let's note in this scene that most importantly, Jesus essentially 
ignores the devil. The reason is because in terms of Jesus' Jesus' mission, in terms of his focus, the devil in large measure is irrelevant to his life. Here's an interesting thing to consider. No matter how complex or deceptive or sinister the devil's attempts to influence you may be, the right response from the word is always straightforward and simple. Consider how simple and powerful the responses of Jesus are to the devil here. And then consider the simplicity of the exhortations given to us in the word about sin and about confronting evil. See, I think the Spirit knows if he makes this too complicated for us, <laughs> we're dead, right? Listen to how simple this is. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Is that not exactly what we see Jesus doing here? If that's true, is not that as simple and straightforward as it can be for us? Instead of allowing yourself to be curious about evil, or instead of just allowing evil to pass before your eyes based on what you're watching on TV or in the movies, instead of of wondering and tossing around in your mind, what is so wrong about certain types of unbiblical thinking? Instead of doing those things, just flee from them. Or instead of trying to minimize or merely manage sin, resist it because you are submitted to God and the devil will flee from you according to the word of God. Flee from youthful passions. 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18. And flee from idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10.14. Very simple. Very straightforward, very powerful. Let me, let me say a word to our young people. The sooner that you stop flirting with sin, the sooner you start fleeing sin by the power of the Spirit as you trust in Jesus, the sooner you will be on the road to Christ-like maturity. So stop flirting with sin and start fleeing sin. And in that process, through the power of the Spirit, you will be conformed into the image of Christ. Now the primary way you do this is by considering Jesus. Hebrews 3.1 Indeed, by fixing your eyes 
on Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2. The way you do this is by thinking about whatever is honorable and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise, Philippians 4, 8. How many things do not meet these categories on social media, on YouTube? If nothing else, so many of them are an absolute waste of time to say nothing about all those that are abjectly evil. But there is nothing more honorable and lovely and commendable, excellent and praiseworthy than God himself. Or what if you battle fear and anxiety then I would submit to you, memorize these words. Memorize these words from the prophet Isaiah. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you because he trusts in you. Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed or dependent upon or fixed on you because that person trusts in you. When you fix your mind on the Lord because you trust in him, the result is perfect peace. Look, whatever whatever your age, when you fix your mind on worthwhile things, when God himself is foremost in your thinking, then sinful temptation becomes less enticing, less alluring and less powerful. Look, fixing our eyes on Jesus is a place where we need to hold each other accountable. So many people have accountability partners for things like sexual purity. How about this? Let's hold each other accountable for how we're cultivating love for Christ. Ask me, are you fixing your eyes on Jesus? Because you know what's going to ultimately defeat sin in the long term? Not your defensive strategies. Not covenant eyes for your computer. Love and satisfaction for Jesus. Because when you see Jesus for who he is, sin seems insane. So, In growth group, in families, let's keep pointing each other to Jesus and let's hold each other accountable in the most loving and gracious way by asking each other, are you fixing your eyes on Jesus through the power of the Spirit as you commune with him in God's word? Now, let us consider Jesus here, Hebrews 3.1, Let us consider Jesus here in this particular scene because I want you to find a new way to fight temptation and sin. The way we demonstrate holiness, at least the primary way we demonstrate holiness is not by fighting with all our might at the moment of greatest temptation trying to muster up the will to resist sin i mean that's important to do 
when you find yourself in that place. But if that's the way you normally fight sin, you're going to wear yourself out spiritually and you are going to lose as much as you win. It is far better. It is far better and much more sustainable to consume your thinking with thoughts about the beauty and the majesty and the all-satisfying nature of God so that the temptation to sin, the temptation to sin, it simply becomes more and more irrelevant to you. Why would I want to sin when my eyes are fixed on Jesus because I want to please and honor my Father in heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit? Does anybody right now want to go out, just leave and commit gross sin? Right now? Why not? Because our eyes are fixed on Jesus. In his word, we are communing with him by the spirit. How gross does sin seem now? This is why this is so important. The fight against sin is not just a fight to the death. It's a fight for eternal life. And it's a fight to eternal death. What happened in the garden didn't stay in the garden. What happens here in the wilderness doesn't stay here in the wilderness. Both of them had cosmic implications. The key thing to understand is that despite everything that's at stake in our battle against sin, we flee from sin And we resist the devil by a simple strategy. We do so, we do so through regular communion with God in the Word, by seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit in prayer, and by maintaining Christ centered fellowship with all believers. So the first question to ask yourself if you're struggling with sin or if temptation seems hugely powerful to you is, am I fixing my eyes on Jesus? Am I communing with God in his word? Because if you're not, that you're doing the dumbest thing possible. You're trying to fight the principalities and powers without that which is most powerful. Namely, the presence of God in his word and the truth of his word. Look, Jesus himself was face to face with Satan. He trusted the spirit and he proclaimed God's word. Jesus, the eternal son of God. That's how he fought temptation. How much more those of us who are less righteous than Jesus. When we do this, this is what's so crucial about communing with God, praying 
asking the Spirit to fill us and, and being with other believers because you might not see the glory of Jesus one day because you are just crushed. So what do you need to do? You need other believers, other brothers and sisters who can come around you and say, look at Jesus here. He is your redeemer. He paid for your sin. Trust in him. He is trustworthy. And that may save your soul. As we do this, sin and temptation become less of an obsession for us and more of an irrelevant distraction to us. Because sin is now in its proper place when God is supreme and central in our lives. To use the language of Romans, one of the ways you consider yourself dead to sin is by simply considering temptation insignificant to you. Have you ever thought about how to apply this verse from Romans? Consider yourself dead to sin. Well, how do you do that? Well, how does sin come? Through temptation, right? Well, I'm going to say I'm going to consider myself dead to temptation. I'm going to consider temptation insignificant to me. Because my goal is to honor God. I want to be conformed into the image of Christ. How is sin going to help me with that? Irrelevant. When we fixate on sin or temptations to sin, we allow them to become more insurmountable than they actually are. Again, look what Jesus does here as a man, as a human man. He's not pulling the God card here at all. In fact, it's, it's the opposite. He is representing us as the true and better Adam, and he is fighting against the power of this present darkness by being filled with the Spirit and applying the Word of God to his situation as a man. Man or woman, could any of us not do that? Pray and ask to be filled with the Spirit and apply the Word to our temptations? In other words, what Jesus is doing here is exactly how we should fight sin. Just, just look how dismissive Jesus is of the devil in all three of the temptations. He doesn't really engage him at all. He doesn't really even speak to the devil if you think about it. He just quotes scripture. He doesn't argue with the devil about why the devil is wrong. He doesn't call him a liar. Jesus himself responds to the devil's temptations by quoting scripture in the devil's presence because Jesus is filled with the spirit and he's communing with God. So the next time that you are tempted to sin or you sense the presence of evil... All of us at some point or another have sensed the presence of evil near us. Don't attempt to figure out where the temptation's coming from or engage the devil at all. Just ignore him. You can do this through the Spirit because Jesus defeated sin and temptation for us. Here, here is the proof. Luke 4. And brothers and sisters, through faith... We are in Christ. So don't allow yourself to be distracted by evil. Rather, use it as an opportunity to focus all the more intently on God. Make the words of Scripture your prayer, led by the Spirit. Quote Scripture to God out loud like Jesus did. 
You know what will encourage your soul? Hearing your voice quoting the word of God. You know who won't like that? The one who is tempting you to sin. Because if there's anything that the devil wants to avoid, it's a battle of word and spirit. So he'll, he'll flee. For Jesus, the straightforward challenge of this first temptation was not a, using his innate power as the Son of God to serve himself. The more sinister issue was that Jesus could have allowed himself to simply be distracted by the devil. So often, that's his goal, just to distract us, to get our eyes off of God, right? Like Adam before him was distracted and failed to continue communing with God. Like Adam before him, Jesus would have failed if he had gotten distracted. Just like Adam before him, Jesus would have failed to fulfill the reason for which he came. Namely, to destroy the works of the devil by succeeding where Adam failed. What do you ultimately need? What do you ultimately need? In context, what we all need more than we need food. That's the context. What we all need more than we need food is to commune with the Father by the Spirit through the Word. Think about it, because I think this passage illustrates more clearly than anything else how important this is. It would be better for you to starve to death and remain faithful to God than it would be to sin against God and be well fed. As we do this, we will be able to overcome or at least ignore the distracting tactics of our enemy so that we are led not into temptation, but delivered from evil fully and forever, which is what Jesus taught us to pray daily. Verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. <clears throat> 
For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Sneak peek for next week, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. How do we know that Jesus defeated the devil? in the desert because the spirit remained on him when he came out now in verses five through eight here on the second temptation at the straightforward level we see that jesus is able to resist worshiping the devil and to keep his heart focused obediently on his father in heaven now on the front end this might seem like an easy temptation to overcome Should I worship the one true and living God with whom I've been in fellowship since before there was time? Or the one who's been a murderer from the beginning, the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren, the one trying to devour the people of God? Hmm. Think about that for a minute. But at the more sinister level, we need to think clearly about what is actually going on here. Yes, Satan is crass enough to blaspheme God by asking Jesus to worship him. But believe it or not, there's more at stake here than even that. Think about the fact that the temptations faced by Jesus were not just as real as the temptations that we face. They were actually much harder to overcome. One, because the payoffs were so much bigger. And two, because the stakes were so much higher. Because remember, Jesus wasn't just representing himself. On the one hand, Jesus was representing the Father. By resisting temptation, Jesus was seeking to vindicate the Father's glory and honor by showing that his Father is more valuable than anything else in the world. So what's at stake here for Jesus? Nothing less than the glory and honor of God. That's a big deal. On the other hand, Jesus was also representing us. He was seeking to redeem sinners by standing in our place in perfect obedience, even as he relied on the Spirit's power to do so. And then consider that Jesus, from the devil's perspective, was offered all the power and authority and glory of all the kingdoms on earth. What if someone offered you all of the wealth of all of the nations on earth And all you had to do was bow your knee to something else other than God himself. How would you respond? The devil offered Jesus everything, yet Jesus remained steadfast. Jesus turned down unimaginable wealth, unlimited power, and unprecedented global fame so that his heart would remain faithful to his father, so that the glory and true worth of his father would be vindicated before all creation forever. This is amazing. (laughs) Jesus is awesome. 
Think about his steadfastness in light of this temptation. I mean, I've had my steadfastness to honor God derailed because I couldn't find a matching sock in the morning before I came to church to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus never called me a rock. Look, sometimes life is really hard. But what I'm, the point I'm making is I want us to think about how easily most of us are diverted from our faithfulness to God for essentially minuscule reasons. Jesus overcame incomparably great temptations under unfathomably difficult circumstances without fail and without complaint. Now, I don't think the devil could have possibly known this himself. But I want you to think about the temptations now from Jesus' perspective and what was actually on the table here. The devil was actually offering the wealth and glory of the world's kingdoms, we might say, people of every tongue, tribe, and nation, without the pain of the cross. The devil was offering Jesus a chance to rule over the nations without self-sacrifice and suffering. From Jesus' perspective, the devil was offering to him worldwide allegiance, but at the expense of the ransom of his beloved people. Jesus may have been considered a benevolent ruler, but without the cross of Calvary, he could never have become our blessed Redeemer. So Jesus, just thank you for your unrelenting faithfulness on our behalf against every temptation. What do I ultimately desire? Ultimately, to worship and enjoy God is what we must desire above all things. To put it starkly, the call to every Christian is nothing less than to desire than to desire to worship God faithfully above all earthly pleasures and powers, above all earthly comforts and joys, and above all the wealth and glory this world has to offer. For what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul. Jesus eventually gained the whole world by not forfeiting his soul. He was Adam's righteous successor, and he was and is our representative substitute. 2,000 years ago in the Judean wilderness, Jesus began to redeem sinners and to recreate the world by succeeding where Adam failed, by starting to reverse the curse of sin and by initiating the process of making all things new. Revelation 21 and verse 5. 
Now, by the time we get down to verses 9 through 13, we realize that what the devil has been doing is subtly assaulting the character of God. He's been trying the same strategy that he used to cause Adam and Eve to fall. At the most straightforward level, he's attempting to introduce doubt in the mind of Jesus about whether or not his heavenly father truly cares for him. I mean, just recall for the moment, think about what Jesus probably looked like after spending 40 days without food in the middle of the Judean wilderness. Given his condition, if even a shred of doubt about the father's willing provision and protection of his son might enter the mind of Jesus, then the devil figures maybe Jesus would be willing to make the father prove his love to him by throwing himself down from the temple. Have you ever been tempted to ask the father to prove his love for you? despite what he's already revealed about himself in his word and despite what he has already done for you in Christ. Sometimes we try to tease out a blessing from God because we think that that will assure us of his love for us. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray to be delivered from evil. What I'm saying is that if our motivation is to somehow get God to prove that he loves us, besides what he's already revealed in his word and what he's done for us in Christ, we need to call that what it is, putting God to the test. Because we're not trusting in his character as revealed in his word and through his blessed son. This is the more sinister reality that the devil is attempting with Jesus. In this case... Interestingly, both the straightforward and the more sinister motivations are both centered around trust between the Father and the Son. The devil is trying to get Jesus to somehow divorce the character and integrity and trustworthiness and goodness and covenant faithfulness of God from his word. The devil is trying to get Jesus to doubt God's character, to wonder if there's, is there even a slight discrepancy between what God has said in his word about what he's like and the reality of who God actually is, especially given my current circumstances here as a half-dead man staggering in the Judean wilderness. Just think of the contrast again with Adam and Eve. They failed this test while they were living in an idyllic garden. They had an overabundance of blessing. They had the presence of God, and yet they were still deceived. Adam and Eve entertained the thought that maybe, just maybe, God was holding out on them. Maybe God's trying to hinder our joy by restricting us from from that one tree. I mean, he, I know he's given us everything else, but there's something about that tree. He, he's holding something back from us there. Maybe he doesn't want us to be like him. You know, maybe, though, I mean, God seems to be a giver. 
God seems to be a giver of life, a giver of freedom, and a giver of pleasure and blessing and joy. But that tree's bothering me. Maybe really he's behind the scenes cruel and stingy. Maybe God is actually the type of being who withholds good from his people. So we're justified, frankly, in usurping his authority. We're justified in pursuing our own autonomy. So thought Adam. And so thought Eve. But that was such a tragic mistake that we are still reaping the consequences of it. Even today, people try to usurp God's authority by pursuing their own autonomy at any cost, even the destruction of their own lives. So, who do we ultimately need to trust? What if you're feeling conviction about the fact that you don't trust God fully? And maybe that's for serious reasons. Maybe you have difficult circumstances in your life. Or maybe you, like me, couldn't find your matching sock this morning and you were angry before you came to church because of one sock. What do we do? Whether the reason we were derailed from our faithfulness to God was stupid or whether it's really serious. The answer is we look to Jesus. We look to God's character as revealed in his word and in his son. Because ultimately we need to trust in the same heavenly father that Jesus trusted in on our behalf. We need to trust in the same God that Jesus, our beloved substitute, trusted in even unto death. How much did Jesus actually trust the Father for us? Jesus uttered these words of absolute trust. Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. Is there anything that can convey, are there any words that can convey a more absolute trust than those words? And Jesus uttered these words of absolute trust in his Father for us after he was accused of blasphemy, after he was betrayed, after he was arrested as a criminal, after he was beaten, after he was denied, after he was ridiculed, after he was abandoned, after he had endured scourging, after he had been crucified, after he became sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and after he fully absorbed the unmitigated fury of the wrath of God Almighty for three merciless hours on the cross in our place. How much did Jesus trust in the Father on our behalf? All the way. All the way. 
Jesus trusted his Father's will even unto death. That's why our relationship with this Savior, this God, is our ultimate need. This God must be our ultimate desire. Nothing can compare to him. Therefore, we must trust this God unto eternity. Over and against any temptation the devil can throw at us, may our response always and forever be, Jesus is better. No matter what our circumstances in this life may currently be, because we trust in Jesus, we can say with the poet Milton that the victory of Jesus over Satan in this scene from Luke 4 as our representative means that it will truly lead to paradise regained. Praise be to the Father and to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the most holy Spirit. All glory and honor, wealth and dominion belong to them, rightly so, forever. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are in awe of the fact that apart from Jesus, we got nothing. We are so weak often in our own temptations or when we are tempted. We give in so frequently without Jesus we know we would have no hope. But because of Jesus, we know we have every reason to hope that you will complete the work that you have begun in us because of Christ, because Jesus is better than anything. In his name we pray, amen.